So Lord, the fact that this hasn't happened to us this week, we thank you. We're not exempt from trials or heartache or heartbreak. But our hearts go out to, uh, uh, to Jack Nicholas and his family, and they're trying to work this through. Uh, Lord, I know there are many believers on that pro golf tour. Uh, I, I know uh, the influence that Payne Stewart had and a number of other golfers, and I pray that uh, there might be an openness and, a, and, a, and, a, and an interest in the things of the scriptures that uh, would make a difference in this man's family. And for this family over in Flower Mound who have suffered the loss of this little five-year-old boy, they're just in shock. We don't know where they are with you, but we pray that they would reach out to you and that they would find your peace and your comfort in the midst of tremendous grief and pain. We thank you that Jesus conquered death. Lord, death is such a horrible thing, and our lives are so busy and they're so full, and, and we, we fill our schedules with so many things. Um, that's true of believers and, and non-believers as well. But, but busyness can become a drug that can keep us from dealing with the reality of life and the fact that it's just a vapor and the fact that it is sh so short and it comes to an end. We, uh, we don't like to think about death, but it is the final reality. It's the ultimate reality, and there's no escaping it. So, Father, we thank you for what you have done in sending Christ to die for us. And when Jesus went to that cross, death died. And when he came out of that grave, that's a victory that has affected every single one of us, and we thank you for that. We thank you for truth. Thank you that we can live off of truth. No matter what we're facing, we need your truth. And no matter what we're facing, we need your wisdom. We pray for the guys that are out of work, that are looking for work. They're inevitably under pressure. And Father, we pray that you'll show yourself strong on their behalf, we pray that you'll encourage them, that you'll remind them that your eye is upon them, that you haven't forgotten them, that you know where they are, you know how, what their bills are every month, and you'll make a way and you'll come through in the nick of time. May, may these guys experience your faithfulness in a unique way, Lord, that, uh, that, we, that we don't really need, quite frankly, because you usually provide in other ways through a job, but when it's not there, sometimes you provide dramatically, and we pray that you might do that for them. We pray for our nation. We pray for our leaders. We pray for those in particular who you have put in positions of authority that know you and walk with you. Give them great wisdom. Uh, Lord, uh, give them the wisdom that you gave to Daniel. Give them the wisdom that you gave to Joseph as they are dealing with issues so oftentimes we know very little about. But help them to be courageous, help them to be bold, and help them to stand for righteousness and to not waver. We thank you for our country. We pray that you will revive it. We pray for our churches across this land that the scriptures will be taught and Christ will be honored. And that there will be no deviation from the word of God. 
We know that's the way the culture pulls us, but Lord, we want, we want you to be lifted up. So tonight, we're going to look in your word again, and we ask you to give us exactly, precisely what we need to hear. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The book of Judges is the Frank Sinatra of the Old Testament, in my opinion. And the reason I say that is this. The book of Judges covers a 300-year period in the history of Israel. It's, it's not a real pretty picture, to tell you the truth. Because this 300-year period that runs from the end of uh, Joshua, Joshua's death, runs for about 300 years. And then you get into Samuel and uh, uh, Samuel, who is the last judge, is going to appoint uh, a king uh, over the nation. In that interim of 300 years is the book of Judges. Now, why would I say the book of Judges is the Frank Sinatra of the Old Testament? Well, Frank Sinatra was around a long time, and he had a lot of hit records. But probably his most uh, famous hit song was My Way. My Way. That, uh, you could write my way across the book of Judges. Um, the book of Judges, as we saw last week, ends with the uh, phrase, uh, every man did what was right in his own eyes. When every man does what is right in his own eyes, he does it his way. Frank did it his way. And Frank's not around anymore. Uh, that is something we all need to think about when we do it our way. When we do it our way, we get in trouble. When we do it God's way, it's the best way. Uh, the Bible says there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is destruction. Um, Jesus talked about two ways. He talked about two paths. He talked about two trails. Broad is the road that leads to destruction, but narrow is the gate that leads to life, and few are those who find it. When we do it our way, we get ourselves in deep, deep trouble. Isaiah says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have turned each one to his own way. Uh, my way sounds great. My way sounds like you're a self-made man. Uh, my way sounds like you're willing to uh, stand against the crowd and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, maybe. Uh, if you're not doing it God's way, you're making a, a huge mistake. And there are a lot of guys in here that would say, that's absolutely right. In fact, my life pretty much bottomed out until I started doing it his way. When we do it our way, our lives are full of trouble and difficulty and hardship and disappointment. Because when we do it our way, see, we, we think we know what's best, but we don't know what's best. I mean, little kids think they know what's best, and they want to do it their way. It, it, there's, there's always, it always, it's always interesting when you're in a grocery store, and, and you see this uh, uh, spiritual battle in the heavenlies going on in the grocery aisle between a 33-year-old mother and a 3-year-old kid. And that 3-year-old kid wants to do it his way. And the question is, who's going to win that battle? Well, you can't let a 3-year-old win those battles. You've got to win those battles. Because if that three-year-old consistently wins those battles, they're going to start thinking they can do it my way. And that's the worst thing that can happen to a little kid. 
Uh, in the book of Judges, they did it their way. And, and can I tell you something about the guys in the book of Judges? Um, they were idiots. Just up front, I'm going to tell you, these guys in the book of Judges were a bunch of idiots for 300 years. Not the judges, but the people of Israel. And, and, the, and the reason that I say that to you is because of what it was that God offered to them and what it was that they decided to turn down. When you see the piece of paper that God put on the table to them and then you receive, and you see their response to it, there's only one conclusion that makes any sense. They were idiots. To see what God wanted to do for them and what God's way provided and, quite frankly, the benefits and the blessings and the provision, and then for someone to look at that and say, no, nah, I'm going to do it my way, you're a flat-out, unadulterated idiot. If that seems a little strong to you, turn with me uh, to Deuteronomy 6. And then we're going to go to Deuteronomy 28. Because you've got to go to those two passages... To really get a sense, um, it's Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and then Deuteronomy. This really kind of sets the stage for understanding what happened in, in the book of Judges. Um, in, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, and we've covered this ground here before. In speaking to the, to the men of Israel, God says, you shall love the Lord your God. Moses says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your might. These words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, um, when you lie down and when you rise up. In other words, they, they were to love the Lord and they were to teach the word of God to their children. You, you know you teach your children whether or not you teach them with your lips. Every man is a teacher. Uh, you say, well, no, I don't teach. In fact, I really don't communicate much at all to my children. Well, then you're communicating a whole lot to your children. Because there are two ways to teach. You teach with your mouth, and then you teach with your life. If you never open your mouth, you're teaching. Because they're watching your life. Your kids, your grandkids, ultimately know what you believe just by watching your life. They, they can pick it up pretty quickly. So we're all teaching. Now, now here's the thing. That was the responsibility that, that God put upon the men of Israel. But then if you go down to verse 10, he warns them. And this is a very interesting thing. It, Moses says, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land. They're going to go into the promised land. Uh, you know, it's interesting today. You, you read the papers, you watch the news. Um, we, the, the hot spot on the planet, there are several of them, but the big one is the Middle East. And you've got Israel, and then you've got um, the Palestinians, who are Arabs. Uh, when you study the book of Joshua, the book prior to Judges, there are two issues in Joshua. The first one is, is land, and the second issue is leadership. Uh, Joshua was taking over the leadership of the nation of Israel, and so there's a lot of leadership principles in the book of Joshua. But the other issue was the land. Because under the leadership of Joshua, they were going to take the land which God had promised to give to them. Now that land is still under dispute and it's still being fought over today. 
So when you read about the West Bank and you read about Gaza and you read about all these different places where there are attacks, that's the land that's in the scriptures. Now, interestingly enough, they were going to go into the promised land. Now, the land was inhabited by all of these different people groups in large cities uh, who were very advanced, who had the latest technology uh, militarily. They were very powerful people. But God was going to give them the land, and, and that's kind of the backdrop of Joshua, and it's the backdrop of Deuteronomy. Now, in Deuteronomy, they haven't gone into the land yet, but they're going to go in. So God says to them, In verse 10, then it shall come about when the Lord your God brings you into the land, which he swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now catch this. Here's the deal God puts on the table to these guys. To give you great and splendid cities which you did not build. Well, who built the cities? All these other peoples that built these cities. But guess what? God says, I'm going to give you those cities. That's not a bad deal. And these, these, these weren't run down cities. These were strong, well-protected fortress cities. They had buildings. They had thoroughways. They had waterworks. I mean, this was quite a deal. I'm going to give you cities, what, that you didn't build. They were splendid cities, this, the text says. Now catch this. Not only is he going to give them cities, I'm going to give you houses full of all good things which you did not fill. We've all had the experience of, you know, Saving money, and you're starting out, and you finally get your first house. You get, and you scratch together enough for a down payment, and you know closing costs, and you're sweating it out to the. You finally close that sucker. You can't believe it. You got a new house. Whew. And man, you're, I mean, you're so glad to be in there, because because you made it, you did it, you, you got into it, and you're just. I mean, it took your last dime, but you're into it. And uh, but see, you're really you're really not into it. You own it. Now you got to fill it. And see, we're guys. We don't, think about, we don't think about furniture. We don't think about curtains. We don't think about shutters. We're just, we got the house, you see? That's all we're thinking about, making that mortgage payment. But that's not how our wives think. See, we're fine. We'd sleep in a sleeping bag for 38 years. We don't give a rip. But see, they're thinking curtains. They're thinking carpet, and they're thinking this, and matching, and coordinating, and all that, and better homes, and architectural digest. And, and see, you, you thought you'd scrimped and saved and put everything into the house, and you thought your work was done. Your work is just beginning now that you've got the house because now you've got to fill the house with all kinds of stuff. You can sense the bitterness and resentment coming out of my heart, <laughs> can't you? Now, our wives do a great job of making a home very, very comfortable. But I want you to know what God does here to these guys. What God puts on the table, he says, I'm going to give you houses. Hey, that's a pretty good deal right there to get a house. But I'm going to give you houses full of all good things, which you did not fill, which you didn't have to use your visa card to buy. You see? Down at rooms to go. It's already filled. It's already paid for. I'm, that's, that's what I'm going to do for you. This is, this is a pretty good deal, but he's not done yet. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you hewn cisterns, which you did not dig. Now, water is a big deal in Israel because it's a pure, pretty arid country. Uh, uh, a cistern, they would often um, carve out of rock a cistern, 200, 250, 300 feet deep, where they would capture water when it rained. And you can go to Israel today, and as you go down the steps into the cisterns at Megiddo, you can see the chisel marks. Some guy 
that was just rock. And some guy one day took a hammer, took a chisel, and went, <laughs> takes a lot of <laughs> to get 300 feet down. It's a lot of work. God says, no, I'm going to give you houses that are full of stuff. I'm going to give you cisterns you didn't hewn. That saves you a lot of work. That saves you a lot of rotator cuff injuries. That saves you a lot of chiropractic visits. Water, you've got to have water to live in the land. God goes on, he says, I'm going to give you vineyards and olive trees which you didn't plant. Vineyards. If you ever go to Israel, Israel is sort of like, if you've ever been out in California, it has the same climate as northern San Diego County. And in Israel, you see, you see, I mean, you see orange trees. There's nothing in the world like walking through an orange orchard when the orange blossoms are out. It's the greatest fragrance in the world. They got oranges. They got olives. They got avocados. Everything you can imagine, they can grow in this region. I mean, it's it's inc- it's an incredible climate. I'm I'm going to give you vineyards. I mean, to get a vineyard is a big deal because you know what? There's your economic livelihood right there. Not only is God going to give you a city, not only is he going to give you a house, not only is he going to give you a cistern full of water, but I'm going to give you orchards. You can live off orchards. That's your retirement. That's your 401k. I mean, this thing just keeps getting better and better. Um, He says, when I give you all these things, now catch verse 12. He says, then watch yourself. That you do not forget the Lord who brought you from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. He says, watch yourself. Why would he say watch yourself? Because when, when life starts to get going really well and stuff begins to accumulate and we get prosperous and we get more and more stuff, you know what the tendency is? The tendency is, is to forget. Is to forget where it comes from. Later on in Deuteronomy in verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 18, uh, the scripture says, it is he who gives you the power to make wealth. Are you making a good income? Are you comfortable? Guess where that comes from? That comes from the Lord. Now, this is quite a deal God put on the tail of the guys. I, I want you to love me. I want you to obey me. I want you to walk with me. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you all this stuff. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless your life beyond your wildest dreams. These guys have been slaves. And these guys have been wandering in the wilderness now for 40 years. And God's going to put that on them. But here's what they need to do. Verse 13, you shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship him and swear by his name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the people who surround you. Now, does that sound like a pretty good offer? Does that sound like a pretty good covenant? Yes, it does. That's why these guys were idiots. Because they turned it down. And you know what they did? They went after the other gods. That is the story. That, that's, that's the story of Judges. It, it, it's an amazing thing. They thought their way was better than God's way. And you may look at that and say, well, you know, this kind of sounds to me like those guys on TV, this prosperity theology. Uh, it's not. I was watching Fox News this afternoon at 5. I was watching Brit Hume. And then I went to commercial, and I was just flipping around real quick, and I saw this guy, Jesse Duplantis, on uh, TBN. And, man, he was preaching prosperity gospel. I'm going to tell you something. That, that boy is full of it. Just thought I'd let you know. And, uh, I mean, it was, it was almost blasphemous, the stuff that guy was saying. Promising people this and this and this and this and this. And, you know, and 
Does God say he'll bless us and he'll take care of us and he'll provide for us? Sure he does. But you see, you don't love the stuff, you love the Lord. And here's the other thing. Uh, God, Warren Wiersbe used to say, God will not put something in my hand until he's first done something in my heart. See, God, here's what God wants. God wants us to grow into maturity. And, and sometimes we are like little kids. We want this and this and this and this and this, but we can't handle it. We just flat out can't handle it. We don't have the maturity. How many times have we heard about ball players that, that signed big signing bonuses, made incredible salaries, and by the time they're in their early 30s, they've declared bankruptcy. They're too young to handle it. You see, sure, God, listen, God will bless our lives. God wants us to have a quality of life. Does that mean we won't ever have hardship? It doesn't mean we won't have hardship because God uses hardship to mature us. And by the way, this life is not all there is. There's another life beyond this. It's the same life. It's just a life that's eternal. This is kind of preparation. This is kind of a dress rehearsal. But you you can't negate the fact that God said, I will bless you, and I will be good to you, and the quality of life that you enjoy when you walk with me and do it my way is far superior than anything you could ever imagine. And these guys turn that down. Now, go to Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28 is a central passage in the book of Deuteronomy because it's the passage on the blessings and curses. God was real clear to these guys. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. This is a little nation called Israel. Even today, you know, Israel's not much bigger, um, uh, you know, than like Rhode Island. I mean, it's a very tiny nation. When, when, when you compare, the, which is always funny because they're surrounded by all these Arab nations. And if you just get a map and, and you look at the land that the Arab nations, and then it's so ironic, isn't it? The Palestinians want land in Israel. That land was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the Palestinians, the Arabs, and when you hear Palestinian, think Arab, they got all that land. See, what their real agenda is, they don't want the land, they just don't want the Jews in the land. But that's another issue. But isn't it interesting, this is, this is the same issue going on in the Old Testament. All these blessings will come upon you, I love this, catch this, all these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. If you obey the Lord your God. Have you ever been overtaken by somebody? Sure you have. You're going 80 miles an hour and you look in the rearview mirror and there's a red light trying to overtake you, trying to pursue you. Or maybe, uh, remember uh, uh, Leon Lett in the Super Bowl and he picked up that funnel, fumble and he's heading to the end zone and about 10 yards out, he starts celebrating. And, well, he didn't realize that Don Beebe was about to overtake him. <laughs> you see, this is a good thing. So often we think God's against us. We think God's a killjoy. We think he's not on our team. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you. Is that not a great phrase? You know, God wants... 
what you want for your kids. Do you want your kids to have a great quality of life when they grow up? Sure you do. And you sacrifice, and you're, you do things for your kids, and you die for your kids. Well, if you would do that, how much more so would our Father do for us? What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? If, if, if a son asks a father for a loaf of bread, he won't give him a stone, will he? See? And that's in the context of your father knows you need all these things. He knows you need provision to make it through life. So seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Uh, he's outlining the blessings here. He's putting it down on paper. And he's getting on a roll here. He's saying to these guys, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Uh, Oftentimes, when we go into a city, what we see breaks our heart. Wouldn't it be great to see a city blessed by God? Yeah, I've read, uh, I've read stories of what it was like in Geneva, Switzerland, during the time of the Reformation, when the gospel broke through, the changes that took place in that city. People loved to be in that city because the gospel, the gospel was in that city. And see, when the gospel's in a city... Uh, people who have need are taken care of. Marvin Alasky uh, was the guy who really came up with the term compassionate conservative. And Alasky did a study of uh, homeless people and needy people in America uh, up until about the, 19, uh, about the 1960s, quite frankly, and LBJ's you know, changes in welfare. And it was amazing because... Um, uh, it was a whole different setup for people. There's, there have always been people in need. But you see, before it was the responsibility of the churches. And, and he studied it in depth. And when people had a need, those people were taken care of. But those people are also helped in terms of people would work. Because there's dignity in working. And people need more than a handout. And the scriptures would follow. And, and um, it's different from what we have today. You see, what did Paul say? If a man won't... Work, you won't eat. You know, that's, oh, that, that's, that's so harsh. No, it isn't. We were designed to work. Um, and so many of our cities are broken down because we violated biblical principles. What does the scripture say? How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. So God will bless them in the cities. He'll bless them in the country. Um, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Verse 7, the Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come out against you one way and will flee before you seven ways. I'll tell you what's interesting about Judges. Uh, and, and prior to Judges, you had Joshua. They were to go in and drive these people out. But they didn't drive them all the way out. And what happened during the period of the Judges is that these tribes, these ites, you remember all the ites, the Canaanites and the Jebusites and the Amorites? All those ites, they didn't drive them out and they didn't destroy them, so they were hanging around. And what happened during the time of the judges as Israel began their downward spiral away from God and they were influenced by these other nations, what happens is these nations that they were supposed to have ruled over and driven out, those nations rose up and now were dominating them and were making their life miserable. That never should have happened. But, well, why did it happen? Because they didn't follow the Lord. They did it their way instead of God's way. If they had it in a God's way, God would have defeated their enemies, but they didn't do it his way. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns 
and in all that you put your hand to, and he will bless you in the land which the Lord will give you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to himself, as he swore to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they will be afraid of you. The Lord will make you abound in prosperity. The Lord will open for you his good storehouse. Verse 13, the Lord will make you the head and not the tail. Isn't that interesting? All of that could have been theirs, and you know what? They turned it down. Why? They wanted to do it their way. They're idiots. Now, we have the same potential to be idiots as these guys did. Interestingly enough, Deuteronomy 28, we've just looked at the blessings. They go down to verse 14. But if you start in verse 15, you get the curses. And the curses are twice as long as the blessings. And these guys signed up knowingly, willingly, they signed up for the curses. You know, you buy a car, don't you have three days to change your mind? They could have changed their mind. They didn't change their mind. They just stayed with it. Generation after generation. So now go over to Judges 3. Just keep turning right. You'll find Joshua. Then you'll get to Judges. So you got a downward spiral taking place in the nation of Israel that never should have happened. In the book of Judges, Joshua was about the land and it was about leadership. In Judges, what's happening is they've turned away from godly leadership. And what's happened is in their own land, they're slaves. Note, if you would, chapter 3. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left to test Israel by them. That is, all who had not experienced any of the wars of Canaan. When you read the book of Joshua, it's about war after war after war. They'd go in and take these guys on, and the Lord would fight for them. Verse 2, only in order that the generations of the sons of Israel might be, this is interesting, that they might be taught war, those who had not experienced it formerly. In other words, what had happened, this new generation, they hadn't experienced war. God wanted them to learn about war. That's really interesting. Because, see, they'd had a pretty soft, cushy life here for a while, and there are lessons to be learned in war that you don't learn in affluence. We had a long stretch of affluence. We had a long stretch of peace. Uh, a lot of things are changing now because we've got guys being shot, and we've got car bombs and all, and we've been attacked as a nation. There are lessons you learn in warfare that you don't learn in times of peace, and they needed to learn some lessons. These three nations are out. These nations are outlined in verse three that they're going to deal with. Then in verse four it says they were for testing Israel to find out if they would obey the commandments of the Lord. God's going to give them another shot. There's the grace and mercy of God. Did they obey him? No. All right. He's going to test them again. He's going to give them another crack to see if they would obey the commandments of the Lord, which He had commanded their fathers through Moses. Look at verse five. The sons of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and the Jebusites. Now catch this. And they took their daughters for themselves as wives and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. There you go. That's how they got themselves in trouble. They did it their way. Instead of driving them out, they let them stay. And the reason God wanted them to drive them out was because he didn't want those ites to be influencing the people of Israel. But that's precisely what happened. And they let them stay, and they proliferated, and then they began to intermarry. 
And as they intermarried, you know what happened? Um, their standards went down. And instead of being a nation holy unto the Lord, and instead of influencing the ites, they became influenced by the ites. And then they began to serve their gods. And the truth of the scriptures began to erode. But we're, we're just watching here what happens in nations. We're, we're watching what happens in history. Um, we're watching what happens in denominations. We're watching what happens in churches. Man, I tell you, it's interesting going to New England because, you know, God did a lot of great things in New England. I mean, phenomenal things happened. There was a great awakening in New England. New England was full of churches. But then, but then what happened was they started departing from the Lord. And Unitarianism made its way into New England, into a lot of the churches. You say, what do you Unitarians believe? Nothing. Whatever's in this book, they don't believe it. So you hear a Unitarian church, you think zero church. You think anti-Christ. You think anti-Bible. They believe nothing in this book. So New England is a barren wasteland. It's just, it's been torched. Uh, To this day, you have little tiny pockets. Uh, the, The church that sponsors this conference that I've done for three years, we went by to pick something up. This church seats 80 people. 80 people. That's a large church in this area. Isn't that amazing? You go around different places, uh, San Francisco, on a Sunday. I, I, I preached on a Sunday in the largest evangelical church in San Francisco. And there might have been 180 people there. But the big announcement was that they were changing their service times and encouraging people to, you know, um, not bring their cars because the next Sunday was Gay Rights Sunday. And they had to work around that. Isn't interesting? So here's what happens. We let our guards down. We, and, and, and what did God say? I'm going to do all this for you. I'm going to give you this and this and this. But, but be careful. Look out. Because when I do this, you're going to be tempted and, and, and sure enough, that's what happened. Verse 7, the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. Uh, these uh, pagan religions uh, basically functioned. They, they, were, they were wicked. They were evil. Uh, these religions and these ites fostered, catch this, a culture of death and immorality. So as Israel became... Uh, influenced by these people. The immorality was unbelievable. Uh, The venereal disease was unbelievable. Uh, uh, Baal, uh, when you read about Baal, they had myths and stories of Baal, and and the Baal priest would enact the stories. They did a lot of drama. And all the stories of Baal were sexual in nature. Uh, Baal... uh, castrated his own father and then murdered his father. Then Baal had uh, a couple of wives who were his sisters. So then you get incest, and then you go from there. But they had, um, they had prostitutes in Baal worship. They had male prostitutes, female prostitutes, uh, and sodomite prostitutes. And they had to have those because publicly they would tell the Baal stories, which were all sexual in nature, and they would do sexual acts. Homosexuality was rampant. Bestiality was rampant. 
they sacrifice children into the flames. Can you imagine taking your little son and throwing him into the white hot fire to show your allegiance to Baal? Israel did that. Isn't that amazing? They were a culture of death. And that's why God warned them. Now, guys, can I tell you something? We're surrounded by ites. This stuff hasn't gone away. It just changed the labels. Okay? But you've got to understand all these different issues that you hear about. And the tendency is to think, oh, you know, you know, Steve, you're getting political. I'm telling you, I'm not getting political. These are biblical issues that have been around since the fall. The scripture's full of them. These things were written for our instruction. We're surrounded by ites. There's not as many of them in Texas as you got in the Northeast and you got in the West Coast. There, I tell you, I love coming back to Texas. I do, because there's still, Christianity is still in the fabric. And, and you know, it's funny, um, People from the West Coast, I grew up in California, and before we were in Texas, we lived in Little Rock for four years. And I remember when we moved to Little Rock, we'd just gotten into town, and, you know, we're putting the kids down, and we needed something at the store. I make a run down to the Kroger, and I grabbed whatever it was I need, apple juice or something, and I'm standing, and I get in line, and I'm standing there, and I'm just thinking, and the lady in front of me turned around and said, well, how are you today? And, and I wasn't used to that. Because in California, when you're in line, they'll spit on you. That, that, was, that was an exaggeration. But people don't greet each other. You In California, you're out taking a walk. You're walking down the sidewalk. They won't make eye contact with you. You don't greet. People don't greet each other. They don't nod. That was the thing that struck me when I came to Arkansas and Texas. People, they'll talk to you in line. There's a civility. There's a, see, that's part of the culture. When, when I was in California, in the Bay Area, uh, and pastoring a church, I got a season's pass, San Francisco Giants baseball. I can go to any baseball game I wanted. Um, I, I, uh, I went once or twice in eight years. And I'd never take my kids. There would be more fights. If you go to a Giants game, if you go to an Oakland Raiders football game, a 49ers, uh, I've seen more fights in a half at an Oakland Raiders game that I've seen in 15 years of living in Texas and going to athletic events here. Because it's a completely different culture. There's still a semblance of Christianity affecting the culture here. Isn't that amazing? We've got a lot of problems. We've got a lot of issues. All right, now let's talk about judges. So they're taking... You guys still there? Am I losing you guys? The way the country vote, yeah, the red state, blue state thing. Yeah, you just, you see how people, you see what they believe and their beliefs coming out. Sure, that's really true. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and pass out those bumper stickers. <laughs> let's look at verse 9, because now we're going to see the first judge. So we, last week we looked at the downward spiral that happens in the book of Judges. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. 
They, they have intermarried, they're affected, they've forgotten the Lord, they've forgotten the scriptures, and now they're in trouble in the land. Instead of enjoying the favor of God, they're in trouble. Look at verse 9. When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Why do they cry? Because they're in deep trouble. The Lord raised up a deliverer for the sons of Israel to deliver them, Othniel. Now, who is Othniel? Well, he's related to Caleb. Remember Caleb? Who was it that stood up when the, they, the, the spies went into the land? There were 12 spies, and before they ever went into the promised land, and they saw the great produce, and they saw the great cities, and they came back to give the report to people. And 10 of the 12 spies says, yeah, it's unbelievable, it's a great land, but there are giants in the land. There was a literal race of giants. We can't take these guys. 10 of the spies said that. Two spies stood up and said, God will fight for us, and we can take them. Joshua and who? Caleb. All right. Now, depending on how you read the Hebrew here, this is either Caleb's younger brother or it's his nephew. And I'll let you guys fight it out afterwards in the lobby. But he's related to Caleb, this first judge, Othniel. Now, here's what happens in verse 10. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. Remember, the people are oppressed now. They're in trouble. They're in hardship. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel. And interestingly enough, the word judge means not only to judge, but deliver. Because, see, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the great judge, but he's also the great deliverer, isn't he? When we turn to him. When he went out to war, who? Othniel. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim. Sounds like something you take for a heart murmur. Right? Cushan Rishathaim, which literally means Cushan of double wickedness. That's the guy that was oppressing them. When he went out to war, the Lord gave Cushan of double wickedness, king of Mesopotamia, or king of Aram, into his hand, so that he prevailed over Cushan of double wickedness. And there was no reason in the world they should have prevailed except the Spirit of the Lord heard the cries of the people, and in goodness and mercy and kindness, he raised up Othniel. Othniel took this sucker on, defeated him, and look what happened. Verse 11, then the land had rest for 40 years. The mercy and goodness and forgiveness of God was back upon them. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Othniel not only was raised up, but he judged them and led them for 40 years. You know, a lot of times we think there's not much we can do. But there's a lot that one righteous man can do. One righteous man makes a difference. One righteous man always has an influence. One righteous man always has an impact. Always. Always. I'm reading this book on Theodore Roosevelt after he left the White House. And uh, what his life was like. It was hard for him because he was such a great leader. But I came across this section, and uh, this uh, gal, Patricia O'Toole, is, uh, uh, she's got a few issues, but she's a pretty good writer. Uh, at one point, she said this about Theodore Roosevelt. She said, distilled... Roosevelt's philosophy of government was a secular version of the lessons of Sunday school. Man, that's good. One more time. Distilled. Roosevelt's philosophy of government 
was a secular version of the lessons of Sunday school. The good man and woman lived orderly lives, respected one another's rights, and abided by the golden rule. The good government enforced these principles, rewarding goodness with freedom and bringing malefactors to heal. The good country lived justly in the community of nations and held other countries to the same standard. That comes flat out of the scriptures. That's what Israel was designed to do. And when Roosevelt looked at how he wanted to lead this nation, that's what he wanted for America. He wanted godly people who believed the scriptures to love one another, respect their neighbors, etc., and, and we would have an influence on in other nations. That's what God designed for Israel. Isn't that great? Distilled, his philosophy of government was a secular version of the lessons of Sunday school. And I'll tell you what, when you read what Roosevelt did, the guy wasn't perfect, but I'm going to tell you something. That guy did some great things. That guy was a leader. That guy was a mover, and that guy was a shaker. He was not afraid to stand for righteousness. He was not afraid to stand up against Islamo-fascist, and he did it. If you know anything about when he ruled and when, what, what he did in his lifetime. See, one man can, see, leaders are supposed to be deliverers. They don't enslave, they deliver. That's why God raised up this guy, Othniel. And, and, and so what happened? The land had rest for 40 years. Why? Because you had a godly man in charge. You had a godly man in leadership. And the whole nation breathed a sigh of relief because justice was do being done and God was being honored. Now, now, all right, they're good for 40 years. And we're good for about 15 minutes. Okay? So I want you to catch this. Because you're going to see some stuff happen. So they're good for 40 years, and then Othniel dies. Now catch verse 12, and you'll get a sense of what Judges is all about. Othniel dies. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. They just keep screwing up. So the good guy dies, and what happens? They lose their leader. And you find this so often in the Old Testament. There's a godly leader, and the people follow him, and he has a great influence because of the power of his life and his love for the Lord. But so many of the people who follow him in their own heart, they haven't made the Lord number one. And this is what happens. The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So now they're in trouble all over again, and another guy, another guy comes against them and suppresses them in the land and intimidates them and ruins their lives. And this guy's name is Eglon. So the Lord's, verse 12, so the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Can I show you something real interesting? This guy, Eglon, is king of Moab. The previous guy, Cushan, is king of Mesopotamia, or literally the king of Aram. So you got, turn over to Genesis 19 real quick. I want so so you got uh, Aram and you got the and you got Moab, all right. So who were these guys and where did they come from? Now, let me show you something because this again relates to somebody thinking their way is better than God's way. Uh, in verse nineteen, you got a guy named Lot. And Lot was related to Abraham, and at one point Abraham said, hey, you've got too many herds and I've got too many herds. You choose which land you want. So he looked down there and he saw the land of Sodom, 
and it was pretty rich land. And he said, I'll take that. Abraham says, go to it. Now, the problem was is that Sodom was Sodom. It was a godless city. Uh, but Lot saw the land, and he saw the bucks, and he decided, I'm going for it. Uh, you know the story that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. That's in verse 19. The two angels come to Sodom in the evening. Now, with all seriousness, uh, you can read some books that have been written by liberal scholars that will tell you God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of their sin of, um, of a lack of hospitality. In, in dead, I'm dead serious. Uh, churches, the, these quote-unquote churches that support the homosexual life, that's how they interpret this. It was a lack of hospitality. That's just a crock, and you know it. There was sexual sin that was rampant. And so God, in his goodness, is going to let Lot leave and uh, his wife and his daughters. And as they left, they were given one instruction. And the instruction was what? Don't look back. But um, Lot's wife uh, had her headphones on listening to Sinatra sing, and I did it my way. And so what did she do? She looked back, and God turned her into a pillar of salt. And he's destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, what gets real interesting is, uh, see, there's always consequence. See, Lot, Lot saw this land, and he thought that was the best way. So he did it his way, and he went ahead and moved into Sodom and Gomorrah, although it was really a godless place and a godless culture, and that's where he raised his family. Uh, they escape. Look at verse 30. Lot went up from Zoar and stayed in the mountains, and his two daughters with him. For he was afraid to stay in Zoar, and he stayed in the cave, he and his two daughters. Then the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old. There is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine. Let us lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father. So they made their father drink wine that night. That night the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know where she, when she lay down or when she arose following day the firstborn said to the younger behold i lay last night with my father let us make him drink wine tonight also then you go in and lie with him that we may preserve our family through our father so they made their father drink white that wine that night also and the younger arose and lay with him and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose then both the daughters of lot were with child by their father the firstborn bore a son and called his name moab he is the father of Moabites to this day. As for the younger, he also bore a son, called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the sons of Ammon to this day. Now, who is suppressing the people of Israel in the book of Judges? They're distant relatives. But see, where, where did the Moabs come from? Where did they come from? from? From a girl thinking, I've got to do it my way. See, you don't have to do it your way. God always has a better way. Just a little lesson from history there, guys. Uh, back to Judges. Now, this, gets, this really gets kind of hairy, and this gets kind of wild. I want you to catch this. So now you got this other guy named Eglon. God raises him up because they'd done evil in the sight of the Lord. Israel had. Uh, they defeated Israel. They possessed the city of the palm trees, verse 13. That's the city of Jericho. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. This guy made their life a living hell. Once again, they wouldn't do it the Lord's way. 
Verse 15, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, here they go again, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man, or literally, when it says a left-handed man, a man literally handicapped in the right hand. That's interesting. We'll come back to this. So here's this new deliverer, this guy by the name of Ehud who apparently, from the text, could be a man who had a disability. Maybe the last guy you would think that God would raise up as a deliverer. His left hand worked. Apparently, his right hand didn't work. So read the story. Verse 16. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. What was the tribute? It would have been money. It would have been animals. It would have been... First fruits, that's how they paid this guy off. This guy suppressed them. So the best of everything, they had to pay tribute to this guy. It was an extortion deal. So he presented Ehud, made the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute that he sent away the people who had carried the tribute. Get all this stuff, he's got to have a lot of helpers. But he himself turned back from the idols, which were at Gilgal, and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. All the guys attending the king, they left because this guy had a special message. Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. So, you know, this is a place, you know, on the roof, and, you know, it's hot, and they got the breezes, and it's a special place for the king. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. The handle also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Hope you guys had an early dinner. So God raises this guy up, and he's going in to pay tribute to this obese king, you know, king live forever. And and what he does is, well, you'd think they had frisked the guy. But if he was disabled in this hand, what could this guy do? He's, he's no danger. So he was able to hide this dagger. And when he goes in to talk with this guy, he just puts that sucker and buries it all the way in to the hilt. Verse 23, then Ehud, he kills this guy, went out into the vestibule and shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone out, his servants, the king's servants, came and looked, and behold, The doors of the roof chamber were locked, and they said, he is only relieving himself in the cool room. That's a great verse, isn't it? (laughs) That could be your life verse. (laughs) Some of you guys, it is your life verse. You know how many great sermons of the church have been put together in the cool room? (laughs) They thought this guy's in there, and the John, he's got the door shut, you know? He's reading his magazines. But they waited until they became anxious. But behold, he did not open the doors of the roof chamber. Therefore, they took the key and opened them, and behold, their master had fallen to the floor dead. Now Ehud escaped while they were delaying, and he passed by the idols and escaped to Sarah. And it came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was in front of them. Ephraim was a great tribe. Joshua came from the tribe of Ephraim. These guys were studs. These guys were fighters. So he blows the trumpet in Ephraim, and they all join. Look at verse 28. He said to them, Pursue them, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. 
So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men, and no one escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. We just covered 120 years of the history of Israel. So, what's the story? so what did we learn from this? When things went well, when, when, when their lives were peaceful, when they were enjoying a sense of affluence, so what happened to these guys? It turned their hearts away from the Lord. They lowered their standards biblically. They began to be influenced rather than influencers. And instead of doing it God's way, they did it their way. And then trouble began to develop, the downward spiral, they leave the Lord, they leave their first love. God's got to bring in someone to oppress them because if he doesn't make it hard on he's not going to get their attention. When they finally cry out, God is just, God is kind, God is merciful. Sometimes we get upset with God because we see other people and we think he, he has given them more than he's given us. And you know what? Sometimes that's true. But you know, a lot of times, guys, we're not ready. We're not mature enough. Mature enough. We can't handle. When you've got kids, you've got teenagers, you've got one that's more mature than the other. They might only be a couple years apart. You might have a 16-year-old who's more mature than an 18-year-old. That, that, that 16-year-old is more responsible than an 18-year-old. So that 16-year-old should have more privilege because they can handle it because of their maturity you see how this works? That's how God works with us. So instead of looking at the Lord and saying, Lord, why haven't you done more for me? So what did Israel do all the time they were wandering in the wilderness? They complained, they complained, they complained. Do you know that you had more at lunch than 70% of people probably on the face of the earth will have all day long? God's been so good to us. God's been so gracious to us. He knows precisely what he's doing in our lives. The smartest thing we can do, guys, is to do it his way. We bow, we obey, we follow. We screw up, we run back, back to him, we confess our sin. And when he sees us loving him and following him, then the favor, the favor can come into your life. And it'll be sweet, and it'll be good. But it's got to be done his way. You see, at some point, he says, oh, yeah, Christ is my Savior. I, okay, okay, great. Let me ask you something. Is he your Lord? This is lordship. He's got to be your Lord. You got to bow. You got to submit. It's got to be his way for all of us. Let's pray. So, Father, help us to learn from these stories. Help us to learn. From these men. They walked the face of the earth, they're gone. Now we're walking the face of the earth. Lord, maybe we've been struggling with you and fighting with you and uh, been angry with you because it's not going the way that we had anticipated. Lord, help us to take our hands off the steering wheel. Help us to submit. Help us to say, not my will be done. 
When we do that, we'll experience rest. There'll be rest in the land, and there'll be rest in our lives. There'll be rest in our homes. In Jesus' name we pray.